Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is in our I'd like to start off today by reading one of my favorite verses that I learned by heart when I was memorizing scripture with a friend many, many years ago. It's the first verse, first two verses of Romans chapter 12, Paul's letter to the Romans. <clears throat> I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The saying is so articulate, so full, and so rich. I'm going to take a moment, and I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase it in perhaps some less rich language of my own. The language that Paul uses is urgent. In one of the translations, he says, I beseech you, brothers and sisters. And if I may paraphrase, in view of God's mercies, in view of all that God has done for us, considering who he has revealed himself to be, offer your bodies, that is your whole self, as a living sacrifice. This is what your good God desires, you and your heart. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not embrace the way the world thinks and behaves, but be healed and transformed and cleansed by the recreating of your soul that is your very being. Then you will be able to know how to live a life of peace, pleasing to God in a right relationship with him, knowing what his will for your life is. This verse came to me as I began to look at the gospel this week. And I thought it would be a good way to have that in our minds as we think about the interaction between Christ and the rich young ruler. The gospel begins. At that time, a young man came to Jesus, kneeling and saying, good teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you call me good? One there is who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, the commentators, the fathers of the church, say that this man did not come like some to trick Jesus, to catch him in his words, but he was honest and sincere. He was a pious young man, according to what he knew as a good Jew. And he wanted to know what thing that he could do to inherit eternal life. He pushed through the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, all those scoffers who were trying to catch Jesus out. But the young man was only ready for sort of a Jewish answer a legal adherence. But what did Jesus 
say. Obey the commandments. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. He doesn't list all of them. He lists a few, implying that he should obey all of them. And he finishes with one, which is not even one of the Ten Commandments, but a commandment of Christ. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have observed. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. This was a hard saying, and I use the word hard saying in quotes. We might remember that Jesus once said to a crowd of his disciples, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And some said, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And some ceased to follow him. So for this young man, go sell all that you have and give to the poor was a hard saying because he was rich. I'd like to read from you what St. Sophroni teaches about these hard sayings. In the gospel, the way of the Lord is often prepared through hard sayings. For example, St. John the Baptist called the children of the Jews a generation of vipers. This was explained as follows by Father Sophroni. With, his, with this harsh word, John actually consoled the people by means of the contrition he brought upon them. Contrition humbles the heart of man, and humility opens the heart to receive the Holy Spirit, the grace and the comforter. All hard sayings then can be understood through St. Paul's words. When he said the hard words to his disciples in Corinth. Who is he then that make me glad? But the same which made me sorry. In the same way as St. John the Baptist, the apostle brings his spiritual children to contrition by provoking in them an awareness that their life is not as it should be. He brings them to humility and therefore to grace. So in the life of a Christian, St. Sophroni says, a hard saying is equivalent to the rushing mighty wind of Pentecost. It provokes man to contrition, and this contrition is the forerunner of the Holy Spirit. It melts the mountains of the impurity that sit upon the heart. It breaks the rocks of the hardness of man's inner being and helps him find his deep heart. So man undergoes a primordial earthquake when he suffers such trials as are necessary to teach him that one thing alone is needful, the discovery of his heart. Such sayings are able to save us says St. Sophroni, they are meant to shake us up. And this is exactly the hard word that our Lord says to this young man. He knew his heart. He knew that he loved his wealth. 
and that this was going to be a stumbling block for him. And so what does it say that the man did? It says he went away sorrowful. Now we don't know the end of his story. We do know that Jesus loved him. Jesus, by this word, revealed his own heart to him. He made it possible that he could see his own heart so that then he could offer his heart to God and follow him. Jesus desired his freedom because he was bound to his wealth. Jesus desired his healing and his perfection. We don't know the end of his story. We don't know if he repented. Maybe the hard saying did indeed lead him to contrition and open the door for grace. It's hard to believe that anyone could have a face-to-face -face encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and not be changed. Maybe not in that moment, but maybe in the contrition of his heart, he comes back to Christ and indeed does follow him. Now, if we're paying attention, this is also a very hard saying for us. We might think, well, he was speaking to that rich, rich ruler who loved his wealth. But then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. In other words, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom. This is a hard saying, because for all of us, to a degree, we are rich. We are all wealthy. And I don't want to take time to convince you this is true, but we are all wealthy. Now, we might look into the Father and say, well, maybe there's some loophole here. So I read Blessed Theophilot, his commentary. As long as a man is rich and he has in excess, while others do not have even the necessities, he can in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. But when all his riches have been shed, then he's not rich. So then he can enter. No loophole there. St. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, might have said, in addition to, I urge you to present yourselves as living sacrifices. He might have said, I urge you, brothers, to offer your finances as a sacrifice to God. Do not conform your thinking about your wealth to the pattern of this world. So what are we to do with this hard saying? How are we to reconcile this with our lives, the lives we've been called? Do we go away sorrowful? Or do we allow this to inspire us to contrition, to let us humble ourselves that our hearts would be opened to God's grace? We need to rethink, and as St. Paul says, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the word he used for renewing of his mo our minds is the one we also use for soul. We need a transformation. 
The world, my brothers and sisters, looks at money in a twisted, warped way. What's one thing that everybody knows about money? More is better. Is that not the way of the world? And how much of us, how many of us do we spend time thinking about how we might turn our little into more? But we do need to be transformed. We need to transform our thinking about our wealth, because indeed we have wealth that we are responsible for. We need to transform that from ownership to stewardship. We need to remember and recognize and really live that every single thing that we have is from God. All of our wealth has arrived at us, and God has allowed it. And it is our job to offer that back to God. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to sell everything we possess and give to the poor, though this may be a word for you at some point. This would be really impossible, impractical. It really couldn't be done. But what I am saying is that we recognize that what we have is not ours. And if it's not ours, we don't possess it, and we therefore cannot be possessed by it. God has given it to us. And I'm saying that we need to submit everything that we have to our good God. We need to humble ourselves and prayerfully, continuously examine our relationship and our approach to our own wealth. Is how we spend our money pleasing to God? Humbly asking constantly, Am I living and spending for myself or for him who died for us, our master and benefactor, as it says loosely in our thanksgiving prayers? Am I using the wealth I have been given to fulfill the commandments of Christ, to love him and to love my neighbor? <clears throat> we need to ask ourselves, where is our treasure? Where is our heart? Because can we truly be satisfied with the amount of wealth that we have, knowing that so many lack so much? Do we truly love our neighbors as ourselves when we fail to wish for them the same benefits that we have, and then to do something about it? Now, I can't tell you how this works out for each of you in your personal lives. Personal finance is personal. But we stand before God with our wealth and everything that he's given us. And we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But I can tell you, if we are to truly offer back to God everything that he has given us, to truly not be possessed by our possessions, then we should really make use of the guidelines that the church has given us. The church has given us guidelines about how we spend our money? Yes. Of course you've heard of this. The guideline is that we give the first fruits of our labor to him. We give a tithe to the church. 10% off the top, the first fruits of all that God has given us goes right back to him. This symbolically is a way that we, and practically, is a way that we give of ourselves and everything that God has given us 
back to him. We offer ourselves back to God in this way. And this is what the church has given us to do. I'm not saying that's easy, because as we are trained and convinced by the culture around us that the money we have is not enough. We don't have enough for ourselves. How can we possibly do this? And if we, we by chance, are well off by God's grace, we've been given more, and we've been given more responsibilities. The tithing is hard, because if you're wealthy, that's a big check you got to write every month. And we might receive this today as a hard word. First is tithing. And the second, I think you know, is almsgiving. Now, almsgiving is just to give to those who ask, to give to those who we see are in need. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, give to the one who asks. And do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. Give to whoever asks. Don't overthink it. Don't analyze. Don't second guess. Just give from a loving heart. Recognizing that what we have is not ours, it's God's. I love to tell the story, and I'm having a deja vu, you'll probably have it too here. That C.S. Lewis, once walking down a street, came upon a man who was begging alms, and he gave him some money. And the man that was walking with C.S. Lewis said to him, you know he's just going to spend it on beer. And C.S. Lewis famously said, well, that's what I was going to spend it on. <laughs> so it is entirely appropriate for us to share the good that God has placed in our pockets and in our control with those who have less. My brothers and sisters in Christ, the world wants to transform our thinking into its own way of dealing with money. And we worry and we spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about not how we'll be good stewards of our money necessarily, but how we'll make sure we have enough in retirement how we'll make sure we have enough to get through, or how we'll have enough for this vacation, or that vacation, or this cool thing, or that cool thing. I want to make a point here that we are not all as wealthy as each other. And it's easy to say, well, I'm not wealthy because they're wealthy. They're wealthier than I am. And we can point, we can, everybody can do this, can say, that person is more wealthy than me, so clearly I'm not wealthy. Well, we're not to look at anybody but ourselves. God has given us this amount of wealth, and how are we to transform our thinking away from ownership to stewardship? How are we to be good stewards of everything that God has given us? The church has given us these guidelines, tithing and almsgiving. And if we do these things, we will be less wealthy. And then we can begin to look and ask continually how we shall approach all the wealth that God has given us. My brothers and sisters in Christ, no one 
is likely to be condemned for how they spend their money. Our Lord loves us. He desires us to give him our hearts. But he knows our hearts. He knows the challenges of the world that we live in. He desires our freedom. And he challenges us to be more like him. To love our neighbors and even our enemies. Who can be saved? With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If we offer ourselves to him, he will transform us and he will guide us into salvation. And he will make us true stewards of all that he has given us. Amen.